Live from Washington, D.C., it's Quintessential Listening, Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. My special guest is celebrated poet and author John Yamras. Since 1970, he has published 35 books. He has also had more than 3,000 poems published in magazines and anthologies, and he has his recent book of poetry published in Europe, translated by famed translator Fadil Barrage, who's translated a number of well-known works, including Exerbound, Ginsberg, Bukowski, John Fancy, and many more. We'll start our poetic journey with a discussion of selected poems, the director's cut, and move into 24 poems. Welcome, John, to the program. Really exciting to be talking with you. Let's begin, John. What is poetry? To me, poetry is exposing the heart, exposing your feelings, exposing your guts. When I think of poetry, I honestly get chills Mm. bumps on my arms when I think of what poetry means to me and how important it is to me and how sad the world would be without it. Why is poetry important? Some people do not believe that it's important. Some people believe that it's dying. Your thoughts? In a sense, they're right. Poetry is dying, but everything dies, in a sense, to be reborn and change and grow and become something new. Mm -hmm. Uh, Poetry went through a radical change years ago, a few years ago, with the advent and huge success of people like Charles Bukowski. For my money, Bukowski was responsible for everything good and everything bad with modern poetry. He got people to believe that they could write well, but they didn't know how much work went into it, how much thought went into it, how much they they thought that, oh, all I got to do is write about hookers and drinking and bars, and I'm going to be a great poet. There's a lot of work. Jack Kerouac once said that walking on water wasn't built in a day. And by that, he meant that it's very hard to make it look so easy. And the same goes with it with Charles Bukowski. And people calling themselves writers and poets now who should be painting houses or or, or act as plumbers because it takes a lot of work and, and they're afraid to admit that. You said poetry is dying. You're the first of my 400 guests to ever say that. Dying, it's changing. There, there's a process to everything. And Poetry is in a big flux. People are trying to find an audience. Everybody's writing poetry right now, but finding an audience trying to to survive as a writer of poetry is, is difficult these days. All great writers have great influences. Who are some of yours and what makes them great in your eyes? Miles Davis, Willie Mays, and Groucho Marx. Miles Davis Because he taught me the importance of silence. Miles Davis, as a writing teacher, listening to his music, 
he made me understand that if you could say it in one note, why use 10? Because almost by definition, isn't poetry saying as much as you can in as few words as possible? So, but I've got your marks. <laughs> he taught me about humor. <laughs> Most writers of poetry take themselves way too seriously. And while I take the art, the craft of writing very seriously, I don't take myself that serious. I want my poems to make people smile. You don't have to burn up the world with every poem you write. You can make somebody smile and make their day and make them happy. It works just as well. Let me ask you, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? Does it hurt me to write poetry? Based on your lived experience? No, it does not, because I've been publishing since 1970. Mm -hmm. My first book was printed on stone tablets. I've been doing this a long time, and it doesn't hurt me. It's the way I breathe in the morning. I, I get up, I have my cup of coffee, I come down here, and I start writing. That's one thing that I always stress when I talk to aspiring writers. I try to make them understand the importance of being consistent. As much as you like to think that writing poetry is special and separate and golden and all that kind of stuff, you got to treat it like a business. You got to be serious about what you're doing. And every writer of poetry if you want to succeed, whether you like it or not, you got to wear two hats. You got to be the businessman and the artist. Just a fact. Before we move any further, Willie Mays. Willie Mays. When I was a kid, my father was a fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Earlier this afternoon, you and I were talking about how we should address each other. Yes. And I said that I would refer to you as sir because I always was taught to address educators as sir or ma'am. When I was a kid with my name Yamaris, my nickname was Yammy. Of course, I was always Yammy. And short, I was also known as Pee Wee, which I I liked because uh, my father was a big fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers and he loved Pee Wee Reese. Thinking about my dad, I get emotional. I understand. (laughs) Let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Let's talk about your book. 
What inspired it? Because your first book, Selected Poems, reached number one on the Amazon chart. When Selected Poems came out, my publisher, Concrete Mist Press, his ground rules for printing gave him a limit of 550 pages. And he wanted to do a career retrospective with 550 pages of the best of my work, covering my then 52 years as a writer. And I told him he was nuts. He and I went back and forth and fought about the whole thing because I was convinced no one was going to want to buy 550 pages worth of my stuff. But we fought. He gave in. He cut the book back down to 384 pages. He published the book and it did very well. Yes. He said to me, John, it did so well. I think we should do it right. I think we should restore it the way it. I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. We fought. I said, you're even crazier than I thought you were because we already sold as many copies as we were going to sell. And uh, he fought, I fought, he fought, I fought, and he won. Book came out, it was 542 pages, and we called it Selected Poems, the Director's Cut, like they do when they issue reissues of movies. And to both of our surprise, the book, very briefly, hit number one on Amazon in poetry. I made sure I got a screen on it, even if it was number one for an hour. <laughs> number one, and they can't take that you, away from me. You will need to send it to me for verification. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Thank you. And I'm serious. <laughs> what are some of the predominant themes that you write about? Okay, predominant themes. A wife, my life, my love, and my dogs. Don't get any simpler or any greater than that. John, tell us about the cover of the book because it's quite striking. It is. It's really weird having your face on the cover of the books. The photographers involved and the artists involved think I have a bit of an interesting face, but you, you get that face after 72 years. And the artist, Eileen Murphy, uh, she did a really nice job with the cover, starting with the black and white photograph. And, and she cut and pasted and worked with it and put it together. And it's really nice. It is very nice. Yeah. Thank you. Please share some of your poetry. We're going to right now zero in on this book, Selected Poems, The Director's Cut. Because if you're writing poetry, you're writing about what's in your life. And I'll start with this one. It's called Silly Me. Silly me. I'm a pack rat. I save everything. I must have at least 250 pens saved just in case. I've got bits and pieces of cable wire and connectors, curtain rods for windows in an old apartment, dried flowers, bricks, and bits of boards. I've even got tacked up on the wall right in front of me now. A veterinary appointment card from a dog that died two years ago. God, I love that dog. And, and here's one. 
Henry always talked so smooth and cool. Nothing seemed to bother him. Henry always had it together. He always knew just what to say, when to say it, and who to say it to. Henry was cool. I hated Henry. I hated the smugness. I hated everything about him. I hated his short, chubby fingers. I hated his gray, wrinkled pants. And most of all, I just hated Henry just for being Henry. And then, late this afternoon, I was driving down Route 422, just past the dirty bookstore. And I saw Henry walking out. He had a package under his arm. He looked scared and confused. He didn't look like Henry at all. I honked the horn. He turned. I waved. And for the briefest moment, I didn't think Henry was such a bad guy after all. Let's do this one. Did I ever tell you about the time Linda said I was good, that I'd never be Bukowski? Linda was a poet, one of Bukowski's girlfriends in, in the 1970s. For a while, she edited and published a pretty good little magazine. She wrote to me saying that she loved my poems. Actually, it's been so long ago now, I really don't remember if she loved them or liked them, but it doesn't matter. She said that I was good, but I would never be great. Because I wasn't mad. Bukowski, she said, was mad and he was great. I wrote back to her. Wrote back saying that she was right. Bukowski is mad. And Bukowski is great. But if one of the qualifications for being mad and being great was having to put up with women like her, then I'd be more than happy to settle for what I am and what I'm going to be. That was 30 years ago. And you know what? I'm still not mad and I'm still not great. But every now and then, when the moon's just right, I'm not half bad. That's a poem. I was writing and publishing for probably 15 years with 12, 14 books under my belt. I was writing and publishing, and I still hadn't a clue. This here is the poem my if you want to call it my big aha moment. This is where the clouds parted for me, where I figured out what I was doing. I'll read it to you, and then I'll explain it. Poem's only 17 words. It goes like this. Write a poem about that, she said, sitting on the edge of the bed, smiling. Years before that, I would have... Jump through hoops to try to explain that poem, to try to flesh it out, to try to say more, to try to explain to the readers what that was. But when I wrote that particular 17-word poem, I realized, and the clouds parted, I swear to God, they parted for me, and I realized that whatever the reader could imagine in their head, whatever the reader could imagine what that was, 
was so much better and so much more interesting than anything I could ever say as a writer. And once I figured that out, once I realized that the reader is on my side, it made my whole job as a writer easier. John, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form you've been writing quite a while. What is your take on the editing process? I've been doing this long enough that like my hero, Willie Mays, like an athlete, you do things long enough, you get that muscle memory, what you're doing. And if you're a writer and you're doing your craft every day and writing what you're doing, and by the time at this point in my life at 72, by the time I sit down to write something, it's pretty well just about figured out in my head. And like a jazz musician, like Miles Davis, I'm talking about, you know what you're going to do the second it's coming out of your mouth or the second it's coming out of your fingers onto the page and you know what you're going to do. You've written this book. Tell me about the selection process. How did you decide which poems to choose? It was initially left up, up to me to decide, and I didn't want to do that. I thought there's some really lousy poems that I like that might still be lousy poems. And there's some really good poems that I like that other people might not like. So I went with the editor, Eileen Murphy, and she and I painstakingly compiled our lists. We went through each of my then 34 books and compiled our lists of our favorite. And we compared them. And if one poem was on both of our lists, it was automatically in. If it was on one of our lists, it was a maybe. And we'd fight about them. And we did that back and forth and back and forth for a couple of months until we identified all the poems we want to include in that. It, it was her idea to divide the book up into sections. And um, it works. The whole thing works for me. Please share with me a moment where you learned that poetic language had power. Goes back to high school. I always tell people I was too short for the basketball team, too light for the football team, and just couldn't hit a baseball. So it was a way for me to meet the pretty girls. And for me, that's a very powerful incentive. So for me, that's when I learned that poems have power. All right. Thank you. John, it's time for you to share some pieces of your work. Okay, let's do a few more from selected poems the director's cut. A lot are very short. Like this, object lesson. When looking in the mirror, it's often best to overlook the beginnings of a sag under the chin 
and wrinkles under the eyes. It's often best to ignore the gray around the temples and the bloodshot eyes. Know what you really have to watch out for is that look of fear, resignation, even terror. It'll kill you every time. He had this thing on his nose. I don't know if it was a booger or what, but I couldn't stop staring at it. While he kept talking to me about his poems, that's my curse. As soon as someone learns what I do, they start telling me about their own stuff. So he says to me, yeah, started a good one last night. It's called The Keys to Life. It came to me real quick. I bet I'll have it finished in a couple of weeks. Yep, it's called The Keys to Life. I didn't know what to say, but it didn't matter. I wasn't listening. That thing was still on his nose. So I reached in my pocket, grabbed my own keys to life, got in the car and drove away. Back to a poem about one of the dogs in my life. It goes like this. In dog obedience class, for once, my little Abby did everything right. For once, she didn't bite, jump, or pull. This time, she paid attention and sat, stayed, and came and listened, just like all the other dogs. I can't tell you how much I hated that. This next one kind of, I won't say it sums things up for me, but it says a lot for me. Give me poetry that's new, that fails, that makes mistakes. Give me poetry that you don't know what in the world you need to name it. Give me poetry that bleeds from the eyes and shouts at the world. Give me Poetry that stands naked and beaten with its back against the wall, still screaming, I am now. <laughs> One more. One more. I worked in a phone room once, selling light bulbs over the phone. Can you imagine that? Goddamn light bulbs. It was in this little office on the second floor above a pool room, with folding tables set up with chairs and maybe 16 phones. We each had a stack of sheets with prospects' names on it. I don't know where they got the names or why, because it didn't matter because no one ever bought the bulbs. I don't even remember how we were supposed to take an order, and all I did was dial the phone, make my pitch, and wait for him to hang up on me which they always did. job lasted maybe a couple of days before I got tired of it and stopped going. The whole place smelled of sweat, desperation, and a certain kind of failure you can never forget. Do you Thank you. <laughs> do you view yourself as more of a storyteller or a wordsmith or a combination? Sometimes I feel like a song and dance man. I like entertaining people. 
I like the stories that I have to share. Everybody's got the stories that they can share. And some people just have a little bit of a better knack to do it. Now, when you write, what poetic devices do you use most often? Used to be tequila. <laughs> yeah, I heard that's good. <laughs> that's good for writing. <laughs> now it's just coffee. Uh, that's the only poetic device I have. I, I sit down and, and, and try to do it every day. How did you get started? It's, it's, it's a long story and an interesting story, I think. The, the bottom line is that I lied my way into a career. Uh, years ago, back, it might have been 1969, might have been 1970. My friend Rick and I, who also wanted to be a writer, we were complaining about how neither one of us could get published because every time we'd send off to a magazine, the editor would write back and say, where have you been published? What awards have you won? And of course, the answer was nowhere and nothing. So we had a lot of blank walls. So one night, walking back to his house after we had reached the bottom of a bottle of pop-off vodka. Do you remember pop-off vodka? <laughs> and it was probably about $4 a bottle. It had a little sombrero on the top. I don't know why vodka would have a sombrero on top, but it did. In any case, Rick and I were complaining how we could never get published. And we, he were standing at the corner of Oliver and Wakefield Streets. And he looks up at the street sign, hands me the bottle, and says, I hereby award you the Wakefield Prize. I took the bottle of vodka and walked home. The next day, I swear to God, this is a true story. The next day, I rode off to a, a well-known, at the time, poetry magazine out of Chicago. And I said, I've recently been awarded the prestigious Wakefield Prize, would you consider publishing my work? I sent it off. Three weeks, four weeks, whatever passed. I got a letter back from the editor saying, Dear John, I heard about you recently winning the Wakefield Prize. Congratulations. I'd like to publish your work. And that's how I lied myself into a career. True story. It is quite a story. What would you say to an inspiring writer? on how to get started, how to get their feet wet, I would tell them, first, you have to have a thick skin, a thick skull, and you have to be willing to do the work every day. I always tell aspiring writers that those obstacles that are in your way as a writer, they're put there to weed out the unwilling. And if you want to be a writer, you have to be willing. When you write, how does the poem know where to go? Do you lead or does it lead you? Oh, it most definitely leads me. I was writing, I published two little memoirs about what it was like growing up back in the late 1950s. And I wanted the book to be about 100 pages long. But the book told me differently. 
book was a lot shorter and the poems tell me the same thing. If I start out with a goal in mind, for instance, with a poem, they usually don't work out. I feel, as a writer of poetry, I feel almost a kinship with the jazz men. You have to trust your talents and trust your instincts and follow it where it leads you. It might not always be where you intended it to be. You're going to get somewhere interesting just the same. Are you hoping that this book will resonate with a broad range of readers or target a specific audience? That's the audience I'm targeting is people who want to be open to their feelings, to their heart. Uh, so I hope that's a broad range. What do you think makes poets different from other people? They're not. I always fight about that. In my experience, that's why I hate being referred to as a the P word, a right a poet. See, I'm I'm like Fonzie. I can't even say it, it. It catches in my throat because I don't see myself as a poet. Walt Whitman's a poet. Edgar Allan Poe's a poet. Yeah, I I'm just a work in progress. I may have 35 books under my belt, but I'm not yet a poet. I'm still a work in progress. How will you know when you're a poet? What needs to happen? I'll let people decide that. I just want to keep on writing and keep on doing what I do. I'm 72. I've been doing this for a long time, and I seem to be having so much more fun these days at it. Things are opening up to me. Like you, you talked about that second book of mine in translation. 57 poems of mine translated into Albanian. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that little by little, I'm finding an audience. And, and that's fun. It's rewarding. That's a perfect opportunity for us to segue into the book, 24 Poems. I really want to know about that book. The title, I want to know everything. I had 24 poems, and I figured, let's just call it 24 poems. Heck, who was it? T.S. Eliot, didn't he, he write? No, E.E. E. Cummings wrote 83 poems. He had a book called 83 Poems. So if he could do it, I could do 24 poems. And again, this is another one of those books with my ugly mug on the cover. On this one, I had a brand new pair of glasses. I was doing a reading at a bookstore. At Barnes and Noble. I got the glasses that morning and they didn't fit. They were cockeyed on my face. And uh, the photographer took a bunch of pictures and he took a close up of me with my wrinkled aging face and my crooked glasses on my face. And it ended up on the cover of the book. John, how do you know that a poem is complete? It tells me. Did you play baseball when you were a kid? No, I did not. Okay. I played baseball as a kid. When you hit a ball really solid, hit it dead center, you could tell by the crack and the feel and the, 
inside your body you feel good and that's how i feel when a poem is complete it tells me i've learned so much from you today about so many different things let's imagine for a moment that a poem was like a cake what goes into the poem what goes into making a cake for you that's a poem where do you have to put it The main thing for the cake is the surprise. For my poems, they always have to have a bit of a surprise, whether it's for me or for the reader. I always want to have that little thing when you bite into it, it's something different and something new. You you talked about this book, 24 Poems. Let me read. I've picked out five pieces from that book, if I may read them. Perfect. I remember the last time my mother combed my hair. I was standing in the kitchen with my friend Stephen. It was always Stephen, never Steve or Stevie. And we were getting ready to go outside to play. I don't remember how old I was. I just remember being sweaty and dirty. And I'd washed my face and got a drink and asked my mother to comb my hair. And I remember the way Stephen looked at me. When she held the comb under the water and ran it through my hair, I looked at the floor. I heard the water running in the sink. I felt young and stupid and ashamed. The sink was cold against my skin, and there was something cooking on the stove. That was also the last time my mother knelt down and tied my shoes. Another young memory. I was 13 on a Halloween night, and me and my friends were out stealing pumpkins off porches. In a great big night of smash and run, and nobody ever chased us except this one old guy who ran us down the block around the corner and into a field where we lay in the weeds laughing. He stood on the sidewalk and yelled, I know you're out there. I can hear you. One day you're going to regret this. And damn it, the old guy was right. This book, 24 Poems, it was like a response to the heft, the 542 pages of my selected poems. And the expense, that book was expensive. It was $35. So I wanted something slim and very affordable. And this book is just a collection of memories, like this poem. DJ thought he was tough, and he was. He was also a good six inches taller than me, but I caught him off guard when I lunged at him on the bus stop after school. We were maybe 17, and he'd already been scouted by the New York Mets, so that should tell you how big he was. But like I said, I caught him off guard and smothered him in punches and pushed him up against the side of the bus and kept on punching and punching until he said he had enough. And I stood back with sweat and tears and dirt and snot running down my face And I walked onto the bus feeling a good six feet taller 
than I actually was. When I got to my seat and looked out the window, the creepy son of a bitch was still on the ground with his blonde hair covered in dirt and a great big surprised look on his face. He never did make it to the Mets, and I never won another fight again. I got two more from this book. Things weren't going so well for Billy. He just got laid off. The payment on the car was two months late, and he hadn't slept in days, but things could have been worse for him. That thing on his dog's neck wasn't getting any bigger, and there was still some beer left in the fridge. Besides, Billy understood that rejection and bad times are just a part of life, and they no longer hurt. In fact, the only rejection that ever hurt was Karen Kowalski back in the ninth grade, and that one, more than any of them, really hurt. There's one final one from 24 poems. Shostakovich. Shostakovich had the goods, but his music lacked a certain killer instinct. When I listen to him, even his most famous compositions, I'm left feeling like he was never quite able to put it away. If only he had the right kind of help. It's too bad he never got to hear the Ramones. And that's stuff from my 24 poems. Thank you. When I listen to you, you bring your poetry alive. Your voice, is something about your voice. My question is, what is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? As I'm concerned, they're one and the same. When I'm reading a book, when I'm reading a book to myself, I've never been a speed reader. I almost act the book out in my head. When I'm reading War and Peace, which I've read seven times so far, uh, it takes me forever, and I intend it to take me forever. Uh, yeah, there, there is no difference between my speaking voice and the voice in my head and the voice on the paper. Now, are there audio books available of any of your books? No, sir. And why not? I don't know. I would have to do them myself, and I don't think I've got the time or the inclination to do them. I understand. What does your poetry convey about life? Life's fun. Life's easy. Life's hard. And life can be a bitch. That's so true. It brings up a question. So much is happening in our world. There's the good, the bad the ugly, as well as the indifferent. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? They shoot indifference in the head. Poetry is meant to shake people up, to wake them up and to, to make them feel alive. That's why I like jazz music, because it makes me feel alive. I think about reading Proust, however you want to say it. I've read, and I go back to what it was still called, Remembrance of Things Past. 
His book is just like fine jazz to me. It just goes off and wanders. And once you learn how to get with the flow of it, it's so cool. And and that's what I like to convey with my poetry. Get people to, to go along with it. Relax and enjoy the ride. Please share some more of your work. I do have one more section. Picked out. I, I write about my wife a lot. <clears throat> one of my big subjects. We've been married 48 years. Uh, I'm a lucky man and she's crazy. Here's a poem. You are a bowl of popcorn, a slim book of poems and laughter during a moment of silence. You are pink bubblegum, a damn fool and the only person in the world I care about. You are a clock with no hands, a blue bedroom and a $20 bill. You refuse to accept the inevitable. You own way too many dresses and you can't shoot pool. You are as uncomplaining as the sea. Ultimately, no one can put you into words, not even me. When I was a kid, I had a tricycle. It was red. I could go really fast on it. We lived at the end of our block. I'd get on the bike and go as fast as I could down the street to the other corner. I wouldn't slow down, and every time I tried to turn the corner, I'd fall. I'd always tear my pants or scrape an arm or something, but I always got back on the bike and rode like hell back to the house. I don't think I ever did make it around the corner. I didn't have to. Just getting there was enough. And get, getting back to, to writing about the things in your life. There's one. I'm a sucker for black and white movies and salads made with oil and vinegar and real crunchy garlic bread. I have a high tolerance for pain except for needles and hangnails. I love dogs, hate cats, slam the door on Jehovah's Witnesses. I like W.C. Fields, Groucho Marks. Fart jokes and anything that has to do with World War II. I've had five great loves in my life. Four were dogs. The fifth is upstairs, laying on the couch, half asleep, watching Dateline. One final one. Okay, Mr. Death, you win. I'm not so young and stupid to think you haven't stacked the deck. You own the house. You make the rules. But today, the victory is mine. Today, I managed to fight you to a standstill. Today, I've got this poem, this glass of wine. I've got my wife, my books. And over there, I've got that stinking, snoring dog. And that's victory enough for me today, Mr. Death. You lose, and the glory of the gods is mine. Thank you. I loved it. You've been writing for a very long time. 
what are some of the common misconceptions about poets or poetry that you've encountered throughout your life? Most common misconception that I personally recognize is that people think that to be a poet, you have to be special, that your words are golden, that you're imparting some kind of wonderful news. My wife's grandmother had wonderful news to impart, and she wasn't a poet, but she was a poet. Poetry is nothing special, and it's everything special. Are you sure that you do not feel that you're a poet? You're a writer. Am I correct? Yes. Calling myself a poet is too limiting. Okay. I, I, I just want to be a writer. I happen to write poetry of my 35, 36 books, 29 are books of poetry, but I've also written a children's book. I've written two really bad novels. I think the only good thing those bad novels taught me is that I'm not a novelist. Mm. I tried. And I wrote two books about what it was like for me growing up in a in cold country, less than wealthy, very less than wealthy, the 1950s. So I, I don't want to be pigeonholed as a poet. Very nice. We've reached the end of our poetic journey. But before we go, would you please favor us with one more poem? I will. I'm a big believer in serendipity, in letting things happen. And I just opened the book, and this is the poem that stared me in the face. And I think it's the perfect way for us to end this conversation. This little poem is just a short one. It goes like this. Poems are not meant to impress you. They are written to help me make it through the night. And that's all I have to share. Wow. Thank you. It was a great way to end. Thank you. I love your work. You bring it to life. The imagery is wonderful. Where can both books be purchased? Um, you can order them from the publisher or very easily just go to Amazon. Uh, the newest one is called 24 Poems. And the big, thick, heavy, expensive one is called Selected Poems the Director's Cut. Which reached number one on Amazon. Very briefly, and I'm going to send you a picture to prove it. <laughs> John, <laughs> where do you go from here? What's next for you creatively? Creatively, I've got a new book coming out November 15th. Meet for Tea Press is going to be publishing that one. And we're hopefully going to build on the books coming out in Europe in translation. So I've got a lot on my plate and it's fun keeping busy and keeping active. I wish you nothing but the best. Come back with your new book. <laughs> I enjoy your company. Everyone out there, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. 
You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.